0: Welcome to another public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this lecture, three scientists from the University of Bath talk about their research and how it is helping improve health and healthcare.
1: Thank you all for coming this evening. Uh, this is a, a relatively new uh, venture for the university, this idea of a showcase presentation. And I think that... Uh, One of the things that it particularly emphasizes and that I hope will come out over the next hour or so is the enormous diversity of research and scholarship that goes on in the university. Very often with uh, these sorts of public lectures and inaugural lectures and so on, we hear about the research activity of one very particular part of the university, one individual perhaps in the university. What we've got this evening is really a much wider spread of activity. The sort of all-encompassing title, Cells, Citizens, and Communities, Improving Health and Healthcare, covers an enormous spectrum of research. At the one end, we will hear about uh, research concerned with policy, And at the other end of that spectrum, we will hear about research that is focusing at the biochemical, pharmacological end of that spectrum. And I think, as I say, it is very important that we perhaps take more opportunities to uh, display the breadth of research that is going on in the university and that we try to achieve perhaps uh, greater integration and communication between the very diverse strands of disciplines that go to make up our university. So against that background, uh, I'd like to introduce the first speaker, who is Professor Chris Eccleston from the School for Health. Uh, Chris Eccleston is somebody that's been in the university for quite some time. He's nationally, internationally recognized for his work on uh, pain and how we can manage pain. Uh, Chris's background is that of a, of a psychologist, so here we've got another discipline coming in, as it were. Uh, for many years, he's been at the interface between uh, work in the university and uh, much more clinical studies at the uh, the MIN, as we locals call it, the Royal National Hospital for Rheumatic Diseases. And uh, he is uh, head of the pain unit. And what he's going to talk to us about this evening is pain and suffering studying the human condition. Professor Eccleston. Thank
0: you very much for that kind introduction. And thank you for coming out on a cold, Wet, late February evening to listen to a talk about suffering. <laughs> I am a psychologist. I will leave my cards at the end. <laughs> what I want to do tonight is to is I have one goal, one aim, and that is to leave you excited about the possibility of a greater understanding of pain and suffering. To merely whet your appetite about how a novel way of thinking about pain could lead. You to new interventions and new innovations. And that word innovation I'm going to keep using as I try to reflect the work of the BAT Centre for Pain Research across a spectrum of studies and interests that we have. So by definition I hope I will leave you with more questions than I will answer. And I hope that by the end that you will come to me in a variety of forms asking for more information. I'm going to go through a number of different uh, topics of interest that we have, focus on what I think is important about them and what the innovations are. And they are, as you see, pain is interruption, living with incurable pain, which is much of our clinical work, helping people to live with incurable pain. Evidence for treatments, which is very topical in the news this week. Um, the pioneering work we've done in assessment and the work we've just embarked on on increasing access to pain. And then lastly, because it is late, I'm going to share with you my thoughts about Walt Disney. The way that we've come to think about pain, um, from a psychological perspective, is to add to the official definition, which goes something like this, that pain is a unique sensory (coughs) and emotional experience that's associated with tissue damage. Or described in terms of that damage. So, what many people focus on when they're interested in pain is the sensory component and the sensory apparatus that leads to that experience. But I've been trained differently. When I think about any perceptual experience, I think what's its function? What is it there to do? What does it help people and communities and social groups achieve? And when you think about pain from that point of view, it gives you. A different way of thinking about it, a slightly off-centred view. We come to understand that pain is an inevitable part of human life. It cannot be avoided in a very small percentage of people. It functions to interrupt your attention. That's what it does. That's what it's there for, is to say, stop what you're doing. You've got to attend to this danger in your environment. It promotes action. To not do anything when you're in pain would be very odd, wouldn't it? If somebody actually puts a pin in you and you have to actually try it later, much later, okay? (laughs) Try not to behave or react. It's extraordinarily difficult because you are hardwired to behave in reaction to pain. What it also does is it centers you back on yourself. Just think about when you have a headache. It's very hard to keep up with a conversation. It's very hard to think. It pulls you in on yourself. It's classically, to use an old-fashioned term, egotistical. It pulls you in on yourself. It's also very threatening. It urges you to do things. It functions to promote avoidance. It says, get away from that. It's going to cause you pain. That's what it does. It functions to do that. And where I won't be talking about this today it's also a very, has a social function of signaling danger to others. If I go, ah! Then that tells you in inv- that there's something strange in your environment. It <laughs> 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 also tells you, if that were naturally occurring, that there's a danger in your environment. It's a social function. I won't be talking about that today, but it is an interesting area about the way pain functions socially. So taking this unusual view of pain as a functional view of pain, what does it achieve, what's it for? We've uh, tried over a series of studies over 10 years to map out its interruptive characteristics. How does it achieve that interruption? How does it manage to push out all the other interesting things that you could be attending towards in your life and, and stop you in your tracks and say, no, attend to pain? And it does it in a number of different ways. Some of them are characteristics of the stimulus, high intense stimuli, pain that you've never felt before, uh, these are things that really are most likely to attract your attention. It does it because of characteristics of the environment and what you tell about the pain. If, you, if I, you can predict when it's going to come, it's more likely to interrupt you. If I tell you that it's highly threatening, it's more likely to interrupt you. If it happens to somebody who is very fearful about pain sensations anyway has pain-related fear, is very aware of their bodies, it's much more likely to interrupt them. Now, thinking about pain in this way leads to a number of potential innovations. And these are areas that that we are here in Bath pioneering and researching in the center in collaboration with other units. The first thing it does, think about this carefully, most of our analgesic targets, that's pharmacological analgesic targets, are based around the sensory apparatus of stopping the sensation from getting in in the first place. What we've been working on is thinking about novel targets for analgesia in the brain vigilance system. In other words, if you're not attending to it, that's analgesia. Totally new area. Similarly, and you can imagine how pleased I was when I came up with that. (laughs) Chuckling to myself. You know. uh, we, uh, one grant that we've just started is to develop a test of attention to pain. Most of The way in, in clinical trials that we measure whether analgesics work is to measure whether they reduce the intensity of the sensation. Actually, the best measure of an analgesic is that it manages to make you not attend toward the pain. That's what we're working on developing. But many of the people that we know live... Uh, that we're working with now, uh, and clinically, and the RNHRD are, are living with incurable, unstoppable, persistent—what we call chronic pain. And uh, I'll do this relatively quickly, but I'd like to do an experiment with you because I am an experimental psychologist by training. Okay. And it is just an experiment, but it's a thought experiment. I'd like you to consider what the experience of being in chronic pain might be like, living with incurable pain. Okay. Imagine that you're in a lecture theatre. See how powerful this stuff is? And imagine you're listening to an incredibly interesting lecture. Okay. Go with me on this, okay? <laughs> I'm working hard here. It's really interesting, the most important thing that you've ever heard in the long term, and you really want to listen to it. But what's happening is somebody behind you is tapping you on the shoulder. You don't do this, just think about what it would be. Somebody behind you keeps tapping you on the shoulder. Imagine just Can you understand that you're trying to listen to something and you're being distracted away? But imagine that they really do keep tapping you. It's starting to hurt a little bit. What would that feel like? Then imagine that they're really tapping you, thinking that's going to hurt, that's going to leave a bruise. How much attention are you paying to the rest of your life in this interesting lecture? And then imagine that they start whispering in your ear, you're useless, you're pathetic. Look at you. You can't even listen to this lecture, can you? You're never going to be able to do that. You're a waste of space. You might as well give up now. You're taking a place somebody else could have. And then imagine that keeps happening every day. And it happens every week and every hour. And I think if you can get into this way of thinking, you begin, You can begin experimentally to understand what the experience of chronic pain might be like, to become continually, repeatedly interrupted by an aversive, fearful sensation and that the thoughts that go with it yourself is, not somebody else. I'm useless. I'm pathetic. I can't do this. That's what we're dealing with when we're dealing uh, with treatments. And in the innovations that we've developed in the last, I guess, 10 years, but most acutely in the last, most intensively in the last six years, have been in developing Uh, Novel treatments, I'll start at the bottom, Uh, working with um, adults predominantly to try and release them from the struggle of trying to control pain and focus on living a valued life by divorcing the suffering from their pain. I don't have time to do justice to the complexity or to the fascination and the interest that's involved in that treatment tonight, but I can give you that information if you are particularly interested. What I will leave you with is that it is possible to help adults live uh, a life that they want to live, despite being in persistent pain. And if there's one thing that really gets me angry, it's when I hear in media uh, um, uh, portrayals that incurable pain is a reason for suicide, is a reason to stop life, is a reason to, to, to give up. Because we know that there are technologies available and we are pioneering those technologies that can enable people to live with persistent, unremitting pain. Um, one of the things we're very proud of in, in the center and, uh, and in the MIN is that we have developed the first ever residential treatment for adolescents, young people, teenagers with chronic pain. Teenagers have chronic pain as well. One of the nice things about teenagers is they do actually get better. You can cure it. With these particular treatments. Um, So the take-home message there, if you like, is that children have chronic pain too. And here in Bath, we've been developing new treatments and new evidence for how we might uh, return them to a positive life. Evidence, though, is critically important, and this is something else that we're actively uh, researching and very involved in here in Bath, is that um, the number of randomized controlled trials that comes out each week is exponentially arising. Uh, The idea that any one clinician should be able (coughs) to keep up with those trials is is, is, is ludicrous. What we need are ways of sifting through the evidence so that we can help people get the highest quality evidence the right amount of time um, when they need it. And uh, this is topical in the news this week, obviously, because they're talking about antidepressants. Do they work? Do they not work? Depends which trials you use, which trials should we look at, etc. You can look at that across medicine. And we're very proud that this year we've managed to win uh, uh, becoming uh, the centre for the Cochrane Pain and Palliative Care um, Cochrane Review Group that will move to Bath, um, which is a, an evidence-based medicine treatment. That's our innovation in that area. And a very active um, area of, of work in, in the Pain Research Center is also on assessment. And without good technology for measurement, we are lost. We're lost in the darkness. And one of the things that we've been very active in is trying to find ways of better measuring the experience that people have with chronic pain. Not just the pain itself, but the consequences of that. And rather than keep talking, I think I'll uh, I'll try and give you a more concrete example. One of the areas I'm particularly proud of is that we've been working with our physical therapists who are very interested in movement and walking. Fascinating for me as a psychologist. to actually be interested not just in private mental events, your thoughts, your beliefs, your attitudes, but actually how people move and how they walk. And uh, if I show you what I mean... This is a video of one of our patients. and The quality of the video isn't very good, for which I well, I don't apologize. It's uh, done by therapists on a low budget. <laughs> um, this is, this is um, let's call her Isabel. She's an 11-year-old girl with a complex regional pain disorder, which is basically she's got a cold blue foot that hurts like heck, and she can't wait there on it. She had it post-injury in a gymnastics accident and she's had it for about six months. She's off school, she's on a variety of medications and um, she at this point is, is using two sticks but we've asked her not to use them for this assessment. Okay. Now one of the things that we're interested in is how do we best capture human movement? How do we best understand it and how do we um, best evaluate whether we can make positive changes in that area? Okay, But it's interesting to watch um, what she's doing, what I mean by avoidance in pain. I'll show you that again. So we ask her to walk down the corridor and back. This is in the min. And basically, it's, uh, she's trying not to put any weight on her left foot. Can you see that? Um, and I apologize at this moment to those of you listening on the podcast, and you can't see this. And you won't be able to see what I'm about to do either but I'm about to demonstrate what's going on here. Um, basically, what, she, what she's doing is walking and then tr- trying not to, to stand, because it hurts. <laughs> Makes really hurts. So let's not do that. Okay. But she's also holding her upper body like this, because it, she's, it hurts as well, and she's worried. to And that has the, the effect of throwing your, your hands out like that, and then she's walking like that. Okay? Got that? Anybody want to try? Mm-hmm. It's like a penguin walk. But what she's also doing, because it hurts, is trying to get to the end as fast as she can, okay, which accentuates it. Okay. So, one of the things that we've been working on is how might we measure the appropriate changes that, that we have in this environment. And if I, this is three weeks later after intensive therapy. Now, We have lots of videos like this, and I'll be selling my snake all at the end of the evening if anybody likes mine. The reason I keep choosing this one is because I know I'm absolutely sure that I've got permissions on it, and uh, and I, I work with this this girl, so I know the case. Um, but what's interesting about that, for me, I can't really see it now. I'll show you one more time, crashing over my time barrier, is that I'll show you our measurement technology. Okay. Here it is. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> that's a physiotherapist with a stopwatch. Okay. And what you can't see is on the carpet there are two points. Now, and that's standard in the industry, how fast you can walk. What's the problem with that? I'll tell you what the problem with that is. That if we were to measure how fast she walked before and after that treatment, we'd show no change. Okay. But would you, I, I'll put, stick my neck up, would you want to say that this girl has changed? So we're measuring the wrong things, and we have to get smarter at measuring the right things. And That's one of the things that we're working very hard on. It's actually worked out to be a lot more complicated than I thought it was going to be. We have to start measuring quality of movement and the right things Um, so I don't crash into time. I'm going to move quickly on. This is my last example. Um, We know that uh, one of the major problems with the types of things that I do is that we do intensive treatments to help a small number of people live with incurable pain. But there are thousands of people with incurable pain in this country who don't have access to treatment. And one of the things that we have to find ways of doing is is getting smarter at how we bring treatment to them. And this is an early personal computer, as you can see. We've all got one of these in our home now. Okay. There's mom checking her share prices, and there's dad pretending he knows how it works. Yeah. Um, but joking aside, what we now have is we're technologically much more advanced. People have PCs in their homes, at least in, in um, Western industrialized environments. Uh, Technology is moving so fast in terms of measurement abilities. And uh, just one of the things we've just started is a, an EPS, or sorry, an engineering council, grant for four years that, that um, to investigate how we might map the types of things we do in a clinic and put them in individuals' homes coming through their computer so we can get to more people. More innovation. So, to end, I've been thinking a lot about... Um, does anybody know who this is? This is, this is um, Walt Disney's representation. Not him himself, because he's gone by this time but Disney Corporation's representation of pain. There was a movie called Hercules, um, in which uh, I won't won't recount the movie, but basically there are two characters, panic and pain. So somebody had to create what my pain looked like, and this is what they came up with. This movie cost $70 million to make, and it was in the primary aim, it was an animated feature that was in a... The primary goal of this feature is to create enjoyment for people for 90 minutes, Okay. okay. That's the goal in life is to do this. $70 million. It grossed $250 million. Okay. We're talking about different types of budgets to so the ones that I'm used to. Okay. And I'm starting to think what if the Disney Corporation gave me $70 million to do something with pain? What might we be able to do to shift from good to excellent? And I started to think about the knowledge transfer activities, the, the growth in capacity, the building of key relationships. But if we did all of that, what might we do with it? And I'll tell you what we could do with it, because you know, when I wasn't inventing acronyms like Tap, I'm sitting here fantasizing about how it's spelled $70 million. Okay? So here's what Walt Disney would do for me. Okay? Um, one of the things we could do is, is identify, <laughs> take that next stage of those novel analgesic targets really start to move to achievable analgesia in these hard-to-treat cases. We could move those novel outcomes so we can shift the industry away from a perverse obsession with reducing intensity towards asking people whether pain has stopped bothering them or not yet. We could uh, develop, after this uh, initial work, that we're, and we will be doing this, to uh, increase that self- access to those self-management tools. And lastly, I guess the the holy grail is to have a psychobiological, probably predominantly biological understanding of why some people, some children, develop persistent, untreatable, incurable pain. Thank you very much.
1: Okay. Well, let's move from pain to pleasure because the smoking of tobacco is an extremely pleasurable experience for many people. There may be people in the audience that uh, can confirm that. But at the same time, it is also doing enormous damage to the health of uh, not just this country but the world community. In In a previous incarnation as a research neuroscientist, I had a lot of interest in the actions of nicotine on the brain. And uh, I remember, uh, I shouldn't say this, it's politically incorrect these days, but we had a lot of funding from R.J. Reynolds, who make uh, things like camel uh, cigarettes. And when you go into the R.J. Reynolds research headquarters, there's a great big sign there saying, thank you for smoking, in about, I think it's about 26 different languages. Um, Things have moved on since then, and R.J. Reynolds, I think, along with all the rest of the tobacco industry, now accept that, pleasurable though it may be, and it is intensely pleasurable. You know, talking to serious smokers and looking at research, that first cigarette of the morning for a serious smoker brings a a pleasurable sensation to them, coupled also with a very unpleasant sensation. It's this peculiar mixture that really has no, uh, you know, there are no comparisons you can make with the sorts of uh, activities that those non-smokers, I mean, I've never smoked at all, uh, Experience. So there is this very peculiar combination of a very unpleasant experience but an extraordinarily pleasurable experience when you smoke. On the other hand, as I say, it is doing enormous damage to us and costs all societies millions and millions in health care. Linda Bald... Uh, we were very fortunate to have uh, Linda join us a relatively short uh, time ago. Linda came from the University of Glasgow to the uh, uh, University to the Department of uh, Social and Policy Sciences, uh, where Linda is a reader in social policy. And uh, in the relatively short time that she's been here, she has made already an enormous impact on uh, our research profile in this area. We now have A major center for tobacco control uh, studies. And this is an area, as I say, where Linda has a, a national and international reputation. And she's now going to talk to us about tobacco control the next steps for policy and research. Linda.
2: After all that walking, Chris, I think I'm going to stand here, because thinking and walking at the same time has always been a bit difficult in speaking for me. Um, So now for something a little bit different. Um, There are some of you here who may know a lot about smoking and tobacco from your own experience, and there may be some of you in the audience who are working in this area, I think. Um, But I just want to try and give you a general introduction to the issue. And really to cover uh, five things. I want to say something briefly about the problem. Something about how to address the problem, which we know a lot about now. Then a little bit about what we've achieved in the UK, both in policy terms and in research. And then some thoughts on where we need to go next. And then finally, to talk a little bit about our research and the new opportunities we have in Bath and further afield. So the first thing is really is why is smoking important? Why am I so passionate about tobacco control? And why are so many others who work in this field so committed to it? And the facts are, are fairly stark, really. And as I say, some of you may know them. Smoking causes over 100,000 premature deaths each year in the UK. And it's the, our country's single biggest preventable killer. But it's the single biggest preventable killer for all developed countries. And it causes around one in five of all deaths. And on average, smokers lose about 16 years of life. And we commonly say that one in two smokers will die prematurely as a direct result of smoking. And um, it really causes or contributes to, as many of you will know, a whole range of diseases. And is the leading cause of the two most common causes of death in the UK. Cancer and coronary heart disease. So the toll that tobacco takes is phenomenal, and it's particularly phenomenal in some communities in our country, which I'll talk about a little bit later on. So just to say something about addiction, which we've already heard, is that some people, and the media in many cases, would have you believe that smoking is just a lifestyle choice. You know, It's a choice that people make. You can decide whether you pick up that cigarette or put it down, uh, depending on how you feel. But that's just not true. Uh, The cigarette has been designed and refined over decades to be a delivery device that essentially treats those nicotine receptors in the brain. And it's a serious addiction that's as powerful as heroin or cocaine addiction. And many people don't realize that. And the basic fact is that if you reduce smoking, that's the single most important thing you can do for public and for personal health. And we know that. So, a little bit now on where we are. I think the first thing to say is we've achieved a lot. Smoking rates in the UK and in England, as this slide shows you, have dropped fairly consistently. This is from 1978 um, right up until 2005, although we have slightly more recent figures now. So we've moved from a situation where almost half of men were smokers to about, in 2005, a 24% of the population overall. And just in this last year, we've seen an additional 2% reduction in our main survey that we used to measure smoking. But most of the dramatic drop occurred really in the 80s. In the mid-90s, we saw a slowing down of the reductions in smoking, and really, on average, the reduction was about 0.4% per year. And the main reason for that is a lot of the effective things we could have done in relation to tobacco control we weren't doing in this country, but we've caught up, and you know about many of the changes that have happened recently. So that's where we are. So where are we regionally and locally? Well, this is not a great slide, but what it shows you is at the top, prevalence for all of England in 2005 and then all the English regions below it and essentially smoking rates are highest in the northeast as many of you will know they're even higher in Scotland and Northern Ireland Um, but they're not particularly good in the southwest along with the East Midlands and Yorkshire and Humber we're number two in terms of smoking rates and in some of our communities in this region places like Plymouth, In Cornwall, in Swindon, you have very high smoking rates. In some parts of Bristol, you have two-thirds of the community that smokes in some neighbourhoods. So smoking rates are concentrated in particular places. um, And in the southwest, we have some particular challenges, which kind of goes against the image we have of being one of the healthiest regions in the country. So we we do have an issue with tobacco down here. I think the next thing I just want to emphasise is that smoking is intimately linked to people's socioeconomic status disadvantage, addiction, and tobacco go hand in hand. And smoking is the single biggest cause of inequalities in health. And again, that's not just the UK, it's all developed countries. But it means if you're interested in reducing the health gap, then you have to look at tobacco as the major cause. So it accounts for about half of the difference in life expectancy between the highest and the lowest groups. And the problem is, and I'll talk about this in a little bit more detail in a minute, these inequalities are really persistent, No matter what we do in policy terms, we're not making a lot of progress in trying to narrow that gap. So that's a big challenge for research and for policy. And this just shows you in a bit more detail, this is the prevalence of smoking by year, by sex, and by socioeconomic group, going from 1972 up to 2004. And essentially, the gap between manual and non-manual groups for women and for men hasn't narrowed significantly that's the main point of this slide so it's a persistent persistent problem so what about tobacco control well we know a lot about what works in terms of getting people to stop smoking and to reduce smoking prevalence overall and these are uh, this is a framework the the WHO has just introduced in the last year or so there are lots of other versions of this Um, And these are the kinds of things that we know are effective through decades of research to push down smoking rates. So the first one is to monitor tobacco use. In other words, have you got basic information about who's smoking in your population and also to what extent you have prevention in place? The second thing is to protect people from tobacco smoke, and that's about smoking in public places and workplaces, and I'll talk about that in a minute. The third one is to offer help to quit tobacco, so that's about cessation. And then to warn about the dangers of tobacco, so that's public information and health promotion campaigns, mass media interventions, which are highly effective. And then to ban tobacco advertising, which we've gone some way to doing in the UK, promotion and sponsorship. And then finally, and most importantly, the basic one raise the price, which is the most effective policy measure. And the WHO calls this the m package. So another <laughs> wonderful acronym. I think the one thing I would like to say is um, there is no single country in the world that has effectively implemented all of these policies. And there are only 5% of countries in the world that have implemented one of these policies effectively. So most of the global population of smokers does not have, lives in a country that does not have these policies in place, despite the fact that we know that they work. So what about the UK? Well, when Labour came in, very shortly afterwards, one of the first things they did was produce a white paper, the UK's first comprehensive strategy on tobacco, called Smoking Kills. And it really set out a fairly comprehensive tobacco control programme. And we're now 10 years on, and a lot of us are involved in trying to review what we've achieved in the last 10 years. So we're, we're putting together a report that's going to be called Smoking Still Kills which is a basic message, but one that works. So one of the things that the white paper tried to do was it set out targets to reduce adult smoking rates, reduce rates amongst routine and manual groups, amongst pregnant women, which is still a huge problem in this country, and amongst young people. And most of these targets were by 2010. So that was more or less what we were aiming for. What I want to do now is just go into a little bit of detail about two examples of the major policies that have been put into place to reduce smoking and try and give you some um, material from our research that shows um, the extent to which those policies have been successful. So the first one is to talk about cessation. Now, the UK is the only country in the world that has nationally available free, at the point of use smoking treatment services. Taiwan is in the process of implementing a smoking treatment network, but we remain the only country that has this. Um, it was a major development, the first new, um, new treatment, new service introduced into the NHS for decades where NHS stopped smoking services. Um, and they now exist. They exist all across the country, and any smoker who wants to quit can, in theory, access these services. I'll just show you a little bit about them. Um, I've been very involved with these services from the beginning. Um, Weekly, monthly meeting people who work in this field. We have now a sizable body of professionals whose day-to-day business is just to help people stop smoking. That's what they do. And we conducted the national evaluation of the services between 2000 and 2004 in England, and that was funded by the Department of Health. But since then, I've done a number of other studies looking at the effectiveness of the services in Scotland, Three studies, one of them that's ongoing. Many of my colleagues have contributed research from clinical trials and trials that have looked at, uh, pragmatic trials that have looked at services in practice, and they've looked at particular elements of the services. And then, like Chris, I've, I'm more and more involved now in systematic reviews of the evidence, and one of the ones that I've done was looking at evidence on the effectiveness of the NHS services uh, with the National Institute for Clinical Excellence, and the guidance was just published yesterday, actually, for that. Um, So what do we know about them? Well, we know these services are effective. If you try and access a a stop-smoking service, you get a combination of behavioural support, so that's counselling and effective pharmacotherapy. And there's three main stop-smoking drugs in the UK. There's nicotine replacement therapy that comes in lots of different forms. There's a drug called varenicline, uh, Zyban, uh, varenicline, which is called Champix, which is um, a new and effective drug. And then bupropion, which is called Zyban, which originally was an antidepressant, which is effective as well. So these combinations of treatment um, plus pharmacotherapy, support plus pharmacotherapy. And if you access one of these services... The short-term outcomes are about half of smokers will quit. And in the longer term, you have a relapse, a process of relapse, but it's about 17% at one year. But still much more effective than somebody trying to quit on their own, cold turkey, or even trying to quit just buying NRT or the other options that we have. Now, the outcomes are poorer for disadvantaged groups. But one of the things we've done over the years is try to look at the relationship between the number of clients these uh, services are treating, and where they come from, and cessation outcomes, and they're highly effective at treating people from disadvantaged areas, in contrast to most of the rest of the NHS. So they're actually tackling some of that inverse care law. So that's quite an important piece of evidence. But the biggest problem we have now, and we're spending a lot of time on this at the moment, is only about 5% of smokers use these services in any year. So how can we get more people through the door? That's our big issue now. Um, and then the second thing I just want to talk briefly about is smoke-free, uh, our smoking ban that you're all familiar with. Um, on campus, we've had issues about implementing it here, as there are in every workplace. It's, it's been effectively implemented on campus and in lots of other places. So an, it's an almost comprehensive ban on smoking, introduced in Scotland in 06, in Wales and Northern Ireland next, and then finally, after a lot of debate and intermediate steps, in England in July but there are still some exemptions around psychiatric hospitals and other settings. So what do we know about smoke-free? Well, the one thing we do now know from other countries, from Ireland and Scotland, is that it works. Despite what the media and others would like people to believe, um, it's been adopted and really taken on board, a phenomenal cultural change, actually, by the public with very little complaint, despite what people thought. And the outcomes that are emerging from this type of legislation are really phenomenal. In some ways. So, for, for, for Scotland, for example, a 17% reduction in heart attack admissions to nine main Scottish hospitals in the first year of implementation. And that compares with an annual reduction um, of about 3%. So, there's 14% added value there, if you were. Um, a significant reduction in secondhand smoke exposure in children and in adults a significant reduction in smoke uh, exposure in bars, an increase in the proportion of homes with smoking restrictions, which is something people often worry about. If you stop people smoking in the workplace and public places, do they start smoking more at home? We have no evidence to support that, although we've got some good studies underway that are looking at it in more detail. And then lots of support for the legislation. So what are we doing in England? Well, here at Bath, we're coordinating the evaluation of smoke-free England, um, and we are conducting the main secondary analysis study that will look through time at the impact on smoking behaviour, attitudes, and health. Uh, We'll have a one-year report in July and full evaluation results by 2010. But we've got good results coming out already, a 4% reduction in cigarette consumption um, since the ban's been in place, high public support, um, emerging evidence of um, um, health improvements amongst bar workers, for example. So things coming out all the time. Very briefly, things we haven't done. We've been very unsuccessful in keeping the price of tobacco high. Cigarettes are cheaper now than they ever have been in relation to per capita income, um, which is terrible because if you raise the price, people quit. We know that from decades of research. We also were very uh, slow to implement the advertising ban. Uh, Mass media campaigns have not been consistent, and we know Uh, That's one of the most effective triggers to behaviour change. And our efforts on smuggling have really been poor. About one in three cigarettes now smoked in the UK is contraband or illicit tobacco. Um, A huge problem in disadvantaged areas. And then just moving on, I just want to talk about inequalities briefly, and then I'm going to talk about new research. Um, In relation to reducing the smoking gap between more affluent and less affluent groups, we really haven't made any progress. And this slide just shows you smoking prevalence by socioeconomic group, comparing 1998 with 2006. And really, overall, as it says at the bottom, bottom, there's been no significant change in inequalities for manual groups compared with non-manual groups um, in absolute terms. And in fact, in relative terms, there's uh, some evidence of a widening of inequalities, and for smoking and pregnancy, which is an issue that I've, with colleagues, have done research on. I'm very interested in. Um, we've seen a widening of the gap, um, which really suggests there's a lot more that we could be doing. So, what do we do next? Well, the Department of Health, the Scottish uh, Government, uh, the Welsh Assembly, where I was yesterday, are all involved in trying to uh, implement the next stage of tobacco control. And that will mean increased tobacco taxes. We're fairly confident now. Uh, Targeted investment to reduce inequalities. And very basic things, like if you go into Morrison's or the university shop, one of the first things you see behind the counter is a wall of tobacco products. And lots of countries have removed them from the visible point of sale. And we know for young people, that's a very effective way uh, to reduce smoking rates. It's a basic thing we could do, but there's a huge uh, lobby that's very against it. (coughs) And then finally, very important, international developments, because the future for tobacco control, although we've achieved a lot in the UK, is about looking at reducing those rates in other countries that are very high. So finally, I just want to tell you something about the new centre uh, that we've already heard mentioned. Um, We have a fantastic opportunity now in the UK to consolidate what we know and to target our research efforts to answer some very important unanswered questions and we've now got one of five centres for public health excellence which is funded by the UK Clinical Research Collaboration which is the MRC, Cancer Research UK, ESRC, a consortium of funders. So five million pounds of funding for the first five years and it's across seven universities so it's a virtual centre but basically what we've done is we've brought together the best people in the UK who are working on tobacco. Um, And instead of competing with one another for money, we're working together now. And the Tobacco Control Research Group, which spans social and policy sciences, and the School for Health, is the uh, the focus for the centre here. So what are we doing? Well, we've got four main themes, smoking and pregnancy, prevention of uptake of tobacco, smoking treatment or cessation, and then reducing harm, which is a more contentious area, Um, But that's about making safer nicotine products more available to smokers who cannot quit. And then we have a variety of cross-cutting themes. Inequalities in health. uh, Using um, as many different research methods as appropriate in tobacco control because it's a truly multidisciplinary field. Uh, focusing on policy. So this is a field where you absolutely have to engage with government and funders, otherwise we don't get the job done. So it's about policy analysis, evaluation and learning. And then finally, and we'll be leading this part in Bath, looking at how we link with a whole variety of different organisations, not just nationally but internationally, and engaging with smokers, active smokers, and those who are trying to quit in our research. So finally, just a couple of examples of some of the main scientific questions that we're going to be addressing so for smoking and pregnancy these are just a few examples very much multidisciplinary work on looking at the full extent of active and passive smoking on fetal survival and development there's a lot we need to learn about that a lot we already know as well how do we accurately identify pregnant smokers if you ask a woman in an antenatal uh, appointment if she's a smoker in most cases she won't tell you um, so we need to try, and we have very poor data on smoking in pregnancy, we need to try and address that. How do we improve smoking treatment and tailor it for pregnant women? And then how, very importantly, do we prevent relapse? And then in, reduction, in, in relation to inequalities, how do we prevent smoking uptake in disadvantaged groups? Uh, that's an important question for us to address, and there are, there are lots of um, ways that we can approach that. Why are cessation outcomes poorer for disadvantaged groups? So why do people from those neighborhoods and areas find it harder to quit about their life circumstances and how they interact with treatment? And then what is the impact of these policies that I described before, individually and combined, on inequalities in health? And then finally, how do we work with this harm reduction agenda to make alternative forms of nicotine more widely available? Why is NRT so expensive? Why can you only get it in so few places whereas you can buy cigarettes everywhere? That's just not right. And finally, what are we responsible for at Bath? Well, rather a lot, actually, from amongst the new themes. But smoking in pregnancy, smoking and in inequalities, all of this is with our colleagues in the centre... Very important work on public engagement, partnership, and building networks, and we'll have a dedicated post at Bath. Policy analysis and evaluation in our department and in partnership with the Centre for Analysis of Social Policy. And then very important work on tobacco industry analysis. And I guess the final thought that I would just leave you with is that we have a moral obligation to do this work in the southwest because the fourth biggest tobacco company in the world, Imperial Tobacco, Is located just down the road road in Bristol. So, at the same time as myself and our colleagues are trying to deal with tobacco control, we have the tobacco industry very effectively marketing and selling its products to to smokers. That's my final thought. Okay,
1: Okay, so we move from uh, matters of policy, social engineering indeed. Uh, How do you go about changing such deeply ingrained behaviors of a very large proportion of uh, populations, not just of our own country, but of uh, the, the, the entire world community? We move on from there to the laboratory, the pharmacology laboratory, to the molecular end of our spectrum of looking at health, We've heard in Linda Ball's presentation about heart disease and what a major, major problem heart disease is. And heart disease is an umbrella term that encompasses a whole range of uh, potential health problems. And probably more so than the heart itself are problems concerned with the vessels leading from and to the heart, the arteries and the veins, because these are the vessels that really are the primary controllers of blood flow and the distribution of blood around the body. And this is an area of uh, study of Professor Garland and his group in the pharmacology group within the Department of Pharmacy and Pharmacology. Chris Garland and his many colleagues, uh, again, have a a, a national and international uh, reputation in the area of looking at just exactly how the body controls the flow of blood through these various vessels. And that's what Chris is going to talk to us about uh, now. Blood vessels and blood pressure. Professor Garland.
3: Thanks very much, George. OK. Well, I must say, I've not been podcasted before. I must admit, the only experience I've had of podcasting is listening to The Archers from the previous day over (laughs) breakfast. Uh, Anyway. Okay, so the first slide, second slide I'm going to show you, shows blood flowing through the the tissue of a living animal, an anesthetized uh, animal. And what's happening here is the blood is flowing through the arteries, disappearing off the the screen, going through the capillaries and delivering oxygen and nutrients to the the metabolizing tissue, and then coming back and draining back through the veins. And the point I, I want to make with this slide is to the the fact that there's this marked difference in the flow rate of the red blood cells in the arteries and the veins. And the reason for this is that the arterial side of the circulation is a high-pressure system which presents a variable, uh, ever-changing dynamic resistance to the flow of blood. And this is crucial in developing what's called the total peripheral resistance And the peripheral resistance, along with the amount of blood that's coming out of the heart, determines the blood pressure in each of us. And interestingly, the relationship, as far as uh, resistance is concerned, to the diameter of the blood vessels is such that the resistance will change to the power of four. This means, practically, that if the diameter of a blood vessel changes twofold to increase the flow twofold, in fact, the flow will, will increase 16 times. So there's this very critical relationship where a very small increase or decrease in diameter of a blood vessel will have a very large effect on the flow of blood through it, and as a consequence of that, a very large uh, effect on the resistance to flow within the body, and therefore the blood pressure. What you can see here is a a movie of uh, an isolated, very small piece of blood vessel. It's about 2 millimeters long. It's, it's taken again from uh, an animal, and with, with great skill uh, on the part of the people involved in doing these experiments, they cannulate each end, and you can just see the, the tips here with very fine uh, glass pipettes, and this enables fluid, mimicking the body fluids, to be moved through the, the, the lumen and uh, around the outside. And The point I want to make with this uh, movie is that this is a very coordinated activity, and actually... Within this length of blood vessel, there are many thousands of cells. And the the focus of my research over the last 20, 25 years has been in trying to understand how these cells talk to each other and in so doing, very very carefully, very precisely, very rapidly control the flow of blood to different parts of the body and influence our blood pressure. Now, blood pressure, of course, is absolutely absolutely crucial for for us to function uh, as living organisms. And under some situations, um, the blood pressure can rise to higher than normal levels. And this is particularly the case, or there's a particular danger of this as we get older, and in some situations, for example, pregnancy. And it's, it's very important in this regard because blood, blood pressure changes are really uh, asymptomatic. You don't really know that your blood pressure is going up. It's very important to monitor blood pressure on a, on a uh, regular basis, again, particularly as we get, as we get older. Well, the the increase in blood pressure which occurs in the disease state of hypertension is not in itself a a problem. What is a problem is that over time, that high pressure damages our blood vessels and in the ultimate situation can lead on to a heart attack or a stroke. Well, luckily for people who who suffer from high blood pressure, modern pharmacology has produced a, a range of drugs to try and oppose that increase in blood pressure. And the main ones are listed here. These are the the frontline treatments. And what I want to do is is talk for a few moments about one specific uh, drug to illustrate how these drugs, uh, by and large, act. And that group is called the calcium channel blockers. And there are a range of of, uh, drugs or chemicals available which have or are, are classed as calcium channel blocking drugs. Some of you may be more familiar with the the trade names for for these drugs. They all share the common ability to dilate blood vessels. The problem is, as the name implies, they block calcium channels. And in a moment, I'll, I'll tell you what that actually means. The problem is that there are calcium channels in parts of the body apart from the blood vessels. So when you take a calcium channel blocker, not only are you affecting your blood vessels, you're also affecting other parts of the body. And one of the, the aims of pharmacologists is to develop drugs which are selective for the target organ. So in other words, have minimal effect in other parts of the body, in this case in, in parts other than the, the blood vessels. So how do the um, calcium channel blockers work in, in, in our blood vessels to, to reduce uh, blood pressure? Well, the blood, blood vessel is, uh, as, you've, as you've seen already, a, a fairly simple structure. It's a tube, but it's a tube which is lined by muscle cells. And these muscle cells are wrapped around the blood vessel by changing diameter. This is how the, how the uh, diameter changes. The cells are very small in diameter. They're in uh, cross-section, they're about uh, one millionth of, of a meter. And they contain gates or channels, through the cell membrane, which are sensitive to changes in voltage. And I'll come back to this uh, in a a moment. But what happens when the voltage changes, these channels open, and calcium moves into the cell and stimulates a series of events which leads ultimately to the contraction of those cells. And contracting the cells decreases the diameter of the blood vessel, and as we've um, explained, increases the resistance to blood flow. Well, calcium channel blockers do something very simple. They block those channels. The net effect is to relax the smooth muscle because the calcium which is in the cytoplasm is removed by other uh, mechanisms and pumps. And the net effect of that is to decrease the resistance to flow and overall to decrease uh, blood pressure. So this movie shows that in, in a visual sense. This, these are, uh, uh, this is a movie taken uh, in the lab here in Bath. What you're looking at here, these strands are individual smooth muscle cells. We're using a particular type of microscopy called confocal microscopy, which uses lasers rather than um, standard light to illuminate the cells. And we're stimulating with something which mimics the normal innovation of the body. And what you should see here are lots of flashes And now we put in a calcium channel blocker, and effectively we've blocked those flashes. And the flashes are a reflection of calcium ions going up within the smooth muscle cells. And what you've seen there is visually nifedipine actually blocking that calcium increase. Well, the other uh, major group of cells which are present in blood vessels are called endothelial cells. And these are very interesting cells. They line the lumen of all our blood vessels and they're in contact with the flowing blood and as such they can sense uh, changes in chemical uh, uh, constituents of the blood and they can sense changes in flow. And these cells have been the focus of our interest for the last few years. And just like the smooth muscle cells, they also contain calcium channels in the cell membrane. But unlike the smooth muscle cells... These calcium channels are not sensitive to the calcium channel-blocking drugs. Nonetheless, when they're activated, they let calcium into the cell in the same way that calcium goes into the cell in the smooth muscle cells. But this time, instead of contracting the cell, this leads to a relaxation of the adjacent smooth muscle cells because these cells actually secrete or release uh, chemical factors which inhibit contraction in the smooth muscle. And just as we can visualise calcium changes in the smooth muscle cells, so we can do a similar thing with the the endothelial cells, but it's a bit more tricky. And this uh, is an approach which uh, was developed here in Bath, and it uses the pressurised isolated vessels that I've shown you a movie of uh, previously and then using confocal microscopy, which allows us optically to, very, um, to, to, to look through very thin sections of tissue, we can focus down on the lower level of the artery and look at the endothelial cells. And more than that, we can selectively load these cells with calcium indicator dyes. And these are chemicals which will bind calcium. And when they've bound to the calcium, if we stimulate them, with a a certain wavelength of light, they'll actually fluoresce and we can monitor that fluorescence. And in the next slide, I'll, I'll show you endothelial cells and you'll see them flashing. And this is reflecting the spontaneous release of calcium into the cells. So these waves of light which you see here are spontaneous calcium release events. And then they've now gone up because we've applied a drug which has increased the rate of release of calcium through these calcium channels that I've been talking about. The rest of the slide really just shows the way we analyze uh, these events uh, and and then we can manipulate them with with other drugs to to actually probe how the calcium is being released and how it's having an effect. Well, in these endothelial cells, when the calcium goes up, as I've told you already, it releases factors which then go uh, and diffuse to to the muscle cells and relax them. now when these factors relax the muscle they do this in part at least by closing the different type of calcium channel which is present in the muscle cells the ones that the calcium channel blocking agents are interacting with and a, a unique characteristic of these channels is that they're sensitive to what's called membrane voltage this really reflects something that I guess you could euphemistically call bioelectricity. Electricity, which we're all um, familiar with, which lights um, are the, the lights in this room, involves the flow of electrons through uh, electrical cables. In the body, charged particles flow across cell membranes and generate electricity in an analogous fashion. But this electricity, the current which is creating this electricity, is carried by those biologically... Uh, Small but charged ions. The ions which pass through the calcium channels are charged and carry a certain amount of, uh, of current with them. But what's very important is the absolute voltage across the cell membrane, which determines whether or not that calcium channel opens or whether it closes. And we can measure that indirectly by using electrodes and I've already told you that these cells are very, very, very small, so the electrodes need to be much smaller in order not to significantly damage the cells that we, we impale with the, the electrode. And with, again, with great skill and with great patience, we can push an electrode into a cell, and the cell membrane is lipid-based, so it seals around the electrode, and we can then record the potential that's standing across the cell membrane. And if we do that, we can record changes in potential caused by by, uh, adding drugs. And these changes in potential, by opening up these voltage-dependent calcium channels, also produce contraction of the muscle cells in the artery and, as a consequence, a decrease in diameter. And using these sorts of approaches, along with measurements of cell calcium change, we can really probe how the blood vessel is Uh, signalling in in terms of the the cells that make up the blood vessel. And we can uh, start to pick out potential ways to uh, uh, target certain stages in order to try and uh, adopt a more selective approach to uh, blocking, um, for example, the calcium channels without affecting channels elsewhere. Now we can add to this repertoire of experimental techniques, the ability to, again, using confocal microscopy, cutting very narrow optical sections through a pressurized blood vessel in a physiological setting, and then using sophisticated and certainly very expensive software, we can reconstruct those images, and this is one here. And basically what this enables us to do is to look in a physiological setting, at the orientation of the different cells and the different cell connections. And we can look in even higher resolution using another approach called electron microscopy, which requires the use of fixed and and dead tissue. This way we can look at living tissue. We can also identify the, the location of the gates or channels which are admitting the, the ions which are carrying the biological current that we're interested in. And the way we do this is to get antibodies which will bind to the channels because the channels are proteins. And we can tag on those antibodies fluorescent labels which we can then excite with particular wavelengths of light and record the uh, fluorescence which results from that. And then, as a consequence, we can visualise the um, particular proteins we're looking at. So for example um, Conexin-40 is a protein which forms part of structures called gap junctions which link cells together and enable them to communicate. And here we're looking at the, the location of these Conexin-40 molecules around the borders of endothelial cells in a, uh, a pressurised artery. Here we're looking at different proteins. These are Potassium channels or potassium gates, these are channels sort of analogous to the calcium channels, which allow potassium through, not calcium. And this particular uh, type of potassium channel is again distributed fairly broadly through the membrane of the endothelial cells. And then finally, a different type of potassium channel. And in our reconstruction, we can see it projecting through the from the endothelium into the smooth muscle layers. So it's got a different distribution to this potassium channel. So it's by identifying these sorts of differences in distribution and linking those differences to um, measurements of the kinetics of calcium release because calcium is involved in activating these channels, in opening these gates in the cell membrane. And then by recording the voltage changes which are occurring, we can really work out how it is that these endothelial cells manage to keep all the blood vessels in your body as you're sat here now open so that your blood pressure doesn't go up to to very high levels. Well, all this type of work um, lends itself to illustration. This circulation research is the the top journal in the world for publishing research on um, uh, the cardiovascular system. And the image in this relatively recent uh, edition on the front is an image that uh, again was um, uh, developed here in Bath, uh, illustrating some of our work, which was published in that particular uh, edition of the journal. So, finally, then, what I want to do is to just acknowledge some of the people who've contributed to all the work in the vascular pharmacology group in, in Bath. Um, Scientific endeavour of this type requires many different types of skills and it it requires numbers of pairs of hands with those highly developed skills. Uh, This list here is uh, a reflection of people who are still or who have been in the group over the last couple of years Um, and I particularly wanted to acknowledge Dr. Kim Dora who's a senior lecturer in the Department of Pharmacy and Pharmacology who jointly runs the Vascular Pharmacology Group with me. Well, the other final, final uh, acknowledgement I think is to recognise collaborators around the world. Now, any uh, research-led university doesn't only work in its own environment. As a, really, as a, 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 a character, characteristic of a research-led university, that there will be international collaborations, and I'm pleased to acknowledge some of our uh, collaborators who we interact with now and have over the last, again, over the last couple of years, from close and far, the closest, I think, being colleagues uh, in Exeter in the Peninsula Medical School, the furthest, I think, being colleagues in Monash University in uh, Melbourne. So without their specialist skills and without their input to our work, um, we would not have been able to achieve some of the things that we've achieved. And finally, but not least, I guess, to, to acknowledge the main grant funding bodies who've supported our, our research over the years, particularly the Wellcome Trust. Uh, we have program grant support from them and have had for the last 15 years, and the British Heart Foundation. And with that,
1: I uh, thank you for your attention. Okay, so we've heard from three colleagues from very different discipline backgrounds, but nevertheless all of whom have, uh, in a sense, a common goal of improving the health of uh, each and every one of us in their particular ways. And I guess that improvement of the health of the nation is what is central to the Uh, vision of our School for Health. And I have great pleasure in asking the Dean of the School for Health, uh, Professor Ken Judge, to promote uh, a, present a a more formal vote of thanks to our speakers. Ken.
4: As the Deputy Vice-Chancellor said, I've got one specific duty and I won't detain you for long. I know many of you have had long and arduous days, maybe maybe all of you, but just a couple of observations before I let you go. First, my contribution to this event this evening has been very small. I have to plead guilty to being responsible for the cheap alliteration in the title of the presentation. More importantly, I was responsible for press-ganging our three excellent speakers to turn up and give up their leisure and family time this evening. And that takes me to my first point, which is that Excellent, though, these three speakers were from the departments and schools that they represent, there were many other potentially excellent speakers who could have spoken on health-related research. And forgive me for missing out departments, but we could certainly have gone to psychology, biology, mechanical engineering, management, education, economics and international development. Somebody will tell me I've missed some blindingly obvious example. There's a lot of health-related research going on in the university, and that makes it an exciting place to be at this time. But the second point I just want to leave you with in these final remarks is that to make our investment in health-related research really pay off, we can't afford to do our work only in our individual departments or schools or faculties. These departments and faculties are conveniences of the moment. They change quite rapidly in many institutions, and we have to build cross-disciplinary and cross-departmental collaboration. And each of our three speakers this evening and the departments they represent are at the forefront in this university of developing these kinds of collaborative links. I know physiologists in my own school have very productive collaborations with one of Professor Garland's colleagues here this evening, Rex Tyrrell somewhere. Uh, Linda Bald has, has spoken about the collaboration between Social and Policy Sciences and the School for Health. And Chris Eccleston and many other colleagues, are part of a community of applied health psychologists, um, and we really see huge potential in these and a number of other areas for building critical mass in an increasingly competitive research world to punch above our weight, as we must do to grow this university in the future. So I won't detain you any longer. Let me first of all thank all of you for giving up your time to turn up this evening and listen to our three speakers. But most importantly of all, please join with me now in thanking three really excellent speakers, Professor Eccleston, Dr. Bald, and Professor Garland. Thank you very much indeed.